good to be back at CIMC. And in person, this is my first time here at the center. So I practice and teach at Common Ground and on unceded Dakota land, otherwise known as Minneapolis, Minnesota. And Mark Nunberg is my, was my first teacher. So you're, you'll hear from me tonight and you'll hear from him next week. It's kind of a interesting <laughs> scheduling thing that we've done here, Common Ground. Uh, yeah, here, here we are. <laughs> and I'd like to speak on the topic of wise effort, mostly because I think it's such a confusing topic. And every time I talk about it, which I love to do, I learn something in the preparation. So yeah, we'll explore that together a little bit tonight. And hopefully we'll start to see together how wise effort may be a common understanding of effort might not be exactly what the Buddha had in mind. Yeah. And it's a bit challenging to just when we hear that word effort, you might just consider yourself what connotations come up. What does your mind go to when you think about what is wise effort? And maybe some of you have been practice, practicing a while and you might say something like balance or um, kindness. You know, these topics came up the last time I offered this, this talk at Common Ground. And you might also think striving or go get it or something like that, right? Which would be totally appropriate and in alignment with how we live here in the United States so much of the time. So, you know, for me, this, the confusion is uh, part of this kind of cultural collision that we're living in with all of these oppressive systems and um, individualism and uh, kind of what we breathe in in the ether just by living, you know, and moving about that we can think effort is something that we have to really go for and dominate. And yet in Buddhism, it's not like that. Effort is more of a, one way to describe wise effort might be balance. The kind of effort that is in service of our deepest values. So wise effort is uh, the sixth, sixth path factor, I think, on the Noble Eightfold Path. And it's always in service of mindfulness, wise mindfulness. So if you know the Noble Eightfold Path, you don't have to, but this is where the Buddha laid out the teachings. When he described to us what would be a beneficial way to live if we're interested in awakening. And he broke these the whole path, he described in six ways. And there's a wisdom part of the path, there's a mind cultivation part of the path, and there's an ethical part of the path. And they all kind of go together. If you tug on one string, one of the path factors, they all come with. And so if you tug on wise effort, you get the whole rest of the path. And wise effort is this, is in this quadrant, uh, this uh, group of three, along with wise mindfulness and wise concentration, the mind cultivation part of the path. 
And so when we practice wise effort, we're always practicing in a way that supports the development of continuity of awareness. Wise mindfulness, wise concentration, we might call that a deepening continuity, learning to live with more presence, learning to live with intimacy more and more often. So wise effort, the kind of effort that we makes is that we make is in alignment with those values. And we all come to practice with some values. We could take a poll and we would probably have similar values, like how we want to show up and how we want to live. And so if we think of wise effort in kind of a general sense, we're like, okay, wise effort is the effort that this heart or this body that I make in a way that's in alignment with how I want to live with greater presence. And with our aspirations for freedom or liberation, even the deepest freedom, some of us might have that in mind. We might have Nibbana in mind, right? And maybe not in any moment, in every moment, but we might have the aspiration to just have less stress in our life. Anybody come with aspirations to be a little bit more peaceful? Raise your hand if that's you. Okay, good. Yeah. How about to just be a better human? (laughs) Yeah. Right. So these are very common. And thankfully, the Buddhist path illuminates this, some skills that we can develop in order to get there. So as a beginning place, when we launch into a, an exploration of wise effort, we have to understand, we have to understand where we're coming from. What's our, what's our foundation? What's our ground? Where do we start? And that helps us, what we, what helps us with that is to kind of understand our own psychological makeup, right? Are we normally a person who goes for it? Or are we normally a person who hangs back? Right? Do we tend to overdo it? Do we tend to underdo it? Right? If you heard the instruction to relax, are you more inclined to go, you know, I don't really know how to relax. I think that's a wrong instruction. I should probably sit here and force my way into the body. That would be better because I think that's right practice. Or would you be like, yeah, let me go back to bed. (laughs) So this helps us because as we look for balance, we're going to have to intuit the right move in any moment, right? And sometimes teachers will emphasize one thing over another, and it may or may not be the right instruction for us. So understanding where, where am I in all of this? What is my psychology, right? And so how do I When I understand something about my own psychology, then I can pick up an instruction that seems to be useful, right? And we also have to, like I mentioned a minute ago, we also have to understand something about the kind of cultural habits that we're swimming in here in the United States. Right. That the momentum is a uh, moving at the quite a clip, isn't it? I just uh, 
came off of co-leading a retreat at IMS and just on the drive here and I got here and then I took a nice walk in the area and I was just kind of, you know, it's only been seven days, but I was a little bit like, whoa, things are moving really fast. You know, people are talking fast, they're on their phones and in their bag at the same time and zipping in and out of places and honking horns and it's quite, it's quite something out there, right? And this is the moment we're trying to keep up, right? We're working and living at this, trying to keep up with the, the pace of things. And often trying to slow down in the midst of that, right? So understanding the cultural forces that are gonna kind of operate in the background without our understanding a lot of the time. We might not see it always, we might just feel like, well, I'm moving at a pace that's normal for me. Or I'm thinking about things in a way that feels normal for me. But we don't see the influence of our our environment and the habits around us that kind of construct this reality that we're setting in motion in the way that we live. And part of that, those cultural habits, like I mentioned, are the habits to succeed, the habits around ambition, right? The habits around domination. And so again, although we might not, they might not be visible to us when we understand why wise effort, it's useful for us to just ballpark that. Okay. So this is the way things work here in the United States. I understand where I am in relationship to my own psychology, right? And I'm just going to see how, if this, if this makes sense to me, right? If I see something about the movement or the pace of things that kind of flow through this system, and we might no- start to notice that as we, in- as we take in the instructions that we hear in meditation. Because we'll watch our minds go like, no, I don't want to do that, or I'd rather do that, or this is better for me, or you know, whatever it is that we say to ourselves, our own in- inner self-talk when we're listening to what teachers have to say. And what's interesting is that paradoxically, you know, we have these goals in mind often for ourselves because we are kind of a goal-oriented culture. That's part of what's operating in the background, right? When we, we want to get somewhere, it's not enough to just be here and be a learner, right? We want to accomplish something. Anybody have that, like the goal to be something, right? Anything? <laughs> yeah. And we then come to our med- meditation practice in the same way. So we're like, okay, this, I know I've heard about this awakening thing and I think I can do it in the next three months. <laughs> I was teaching at the, the forest refuge and a few uh, weeks ago, actually, and you know, this is, we all come like this. And, you know, I can remember being there myself and hearing the things that people say, like, I really want to, by the end of this week, I'd like to understand this better. Or I'd like to make it through this list, this particular important list that the Buddha talked about. I'd like to make it to the end of that in the next two weeks or something like that. We're just very goal-oriented creatures. And yet the great, one of the great paradoxes is that we're asked to both not be afraid of desires or our goals or 
you know, our aspirations for ourselves, but to also set them down. Because when we are looking too much in the direction of our goals, right, then we're, we pick up that an imbalance of energy or an imbalance of effort. And that interferes with actually getting there, right? And this can play itself out on the cushion quite naturally when we, have you ever been frustrated by the mind's incessant thinking and not having any say over that and trying to have some control over that and not having it? And have you ever wanted to quit because of it? (laughs) Get up and walk away from your cushion, or maybe we did walk away from the cushion, right? God, this is, I'm no good at this. This isn't for me. I've been doing this for a long time. I should be better than this. I should be farther along or some kind of thing like that. So this is just a more example of the kind of structures that are operating in the background of our minds a lot of the time and how they come to the fore. So these, we don't want to be afraid of desires because desires actually shape our lives in good ways. And the Buddha didn't say that we shouldn't have desires. He said, just don't be a just don't, that we need to be mindful of the kind of desires that we have so that we can discern what's skillful or what's wholesome and what's unskillful or unwholesome, right? And wholesome desires lead us in the direction of what's beneficial in our lives, of living a life of presence. And unwholesome or unskillful desires are what are in alignment with our individual and our collective uh, disease, Habits that are in alignment with our well-being and our, the collective well-being and had our habits that are counter, run counter to that. So even these beautiful goals or beautiful aspirations such as I'd like to be a better parent or I'd like to be a more, a better listener for my partner or I'd like to be you know, there for my friends, or I'd like to be a force of goodness and at my job. These are beautiful aspirations, but if we try to make a project out of them, right, then those wholesome desires tip into unwholesome. And wise effort is about discerning this. So finding some way to accept that having desires is not a problem, but actually the movement of those desires into a, the force of greed or craving unwholesome. Right? I read this, um, a bit of this introduction to a, a great book called The Buddha Before Buddhism by Gil Fronstall. And Gil is a wonderful teacher in California. He's also a, a scholar and translator. And, um, I picked up this book because uh, it was mentioned by another teacher and it's been sitting on my shelf a long time and I haven't really read too much of it. And this is, you know, Gil is actually translating some of these poems in this book of the earliest, the earliest Buddhist teachings. And so I was like very, uh, interested in this. I'm going to go read some of it and 
And I always read the introduction to a book and the acknowledgments. And so I got that far <laughs> into the acknowledgments. And Gil said um, something. He was spent quite, a, you know, a paragraph or two or three thanking people that have helped him with the book, including these well-known uh, scholars, translators, teachers that we might be familiar with, like Bhikkhu Bodhi and and Tanisaro Bhikkhu, you know, and many, and Diana Clark at IRC and IMC, and many others, people that I've listened to and uh, have really uh, appreciated and have a deep respect for. And he said that their corrections and suggestions, as he was working on this book, were as humbling as they have been supportive. And I was really moved by this, so moved that I really didn't need to read any further <laughs> for that night. The corrections and suggestions were as humbling as they have been supportive. And I thought to myself, well, what a good student he is. To be interested in being corrected, to be interested in being humbled, and to be able to acknowledge that as a kind of teaching. And to appreciate both the support that's there when we're humbled, right? And the difficulty of it. Simple statement. But making effort, wise effort, is always about making corrections. It's finding ourselves off. I think it's like this. Wait a second. You know, get new information and then correct again. It's so funny where we think the teaching is supposed to be and then where it ends up. being. Life is like this. I might have some idea of what we're going to get out of this practice. And we sit down and we think we're going to try to be calm or be wise or understand something deeply. And then life, you know, the causes and conditions just come together in a particular way and they manifest like this, right? And this experience that we're having becomes our teacher. And we can be both humbled by that And that's a great support to us in deepening our understanding. And this is the way it goes usually, where we sit down and we think we've got it, and then we don't. And so being a good student always accepts that. Accepts that a little less effort. Okay, maybe now the mind is falling asleep, is kind of bored or apathetic. Right? Okay, now I'm falling asleep. Okay, so make a correction. Open the eyes. Take a deep breath. All right, here I am again. Watching, there's interest. There's some aliveness, some energy, and then, oh yeah, feel that soupy feeling, it feels good, it feels pleasant. Here I go again, oh, falling asleep, ah, oh, oh, damn it, you know, wake up again. But that's it. So why does falling asleep, as an example, have to be a problem? Right? It actually doesn't, because it's how we learn, right? it's how we correct, it's how we find that balance of effort, of interest, and tranquility enough to be present. And this is true on the cushion, but it's also true in our lives. 
will notice, or I was noticing myself rushing a little bit this evening, you know, even just off of retreat, rushing a little bit, and then catching myself and just pausing right there and feeling, feeling the energy in my forehead and my body. And like, okay, sweetie, is this how you want to do this? Right? Is this going to help or is this going to get in the way? And so just a moment. And then wanting to continue doing what I was doing, which was prepare for tonight. And being curious about the residue of that over-efforting, of that striving, of that tension, of that rushing, right? And it made it, it made it difficult to actually do what I wanted to do. It made it hard to read and because that there was a momentum, a residue that was felt in the body from that. But we have to be able to feel that too, right? It's like instead of a pursuing, we can think of effort as a kind of attuning and feeling and living into. When you're, if you were sitting with a dear friend and having a conversation and they were telling you something important, you'd want to be there for it. And because you care about your friend, you'd probably be really tuning in to how they were, what their body language was like. You'd be listening between the words, right? Especially if your friend was going through something hard. That kind of receptive quality, that wanting to be present, that effort that's in service of mindfulness, of wise mindfulness, of continuity, it wouldn't help your aspiration, your desire, your wholesome desire to be a support for your friend, if you were distracted and thinking about all the things that you had to do on your to-do list, or, you know, if you're looking all over the house for the cleaning tasks that need to be done, which are many in anybody's house, those things would get in the way, right? But if you really gave yourselves over, if we really gave ourselves over to the person right in front of us, we learn something about wise effort. And we learn that it actually feels good to be there, right? Doesn't it feel good to be present like that? It really does. And we might need to correct, even in that situation. We might catch ourselves looking and find, okay, oh yeah, yeah, I have to figure, right, that mantle needs to be dusted, and oh yeah, and that reminds me of the card that's there that I haven't figured out what to do with yet, and oh, back to my friend. Oh yeah, drop that, sweetie. The heart's willing to drop that, right? And might need a little bit of a reminder that this is important. I care about you. I care about the person. But somehow that attuning, right, both to ourselves and to people in front of us, then provide that all the information we need to make a correction, Wise effort is about deep truth-telling. Telling ourselves the truth about our own inner experience. Being honest with ourselves when we're not 
attending or not attuning when we're not there, being honest with ourselves when we are there and what's moving is not skillful. You know, we could be in front of a friend or with our own experience and feel instead of that kind of warm, warmth and caring heart, we might feel judgment or even agitation, right? Condemning our friend for what they're experiencing, something like that. And so wise effort is about saying yes, being willing to be honest about that. Oh yeah, it's like this for this heart right now, right? Because it's only in this deep reckoning with the truth and we actually get to learn and grow. And that's what we're doing as practitioners. We're deepening our understanding. And it's this deepening understanding that supports our connection with non-stress or non-reactivity or non-clinging. And so it doesn't actually help when we notice an unskillful, an unskillfulness of the heart moving through it. It doesn't actually help to, to say, oh, you're no good. Like heart, you are no good. Or Shelly, sweetie, you're no good, right? You're, you're not a good person right now. It doesn't really help because that, that's actually an out of balance kind of effort, right? That's more of that dominating energy. But a pivot, kind of away from that pursuing energy, holding on, grabbing on, finding a center, a self right there, and pointing our finger at it, you know, another move is to actually be relaxed and to receive it. And that receptivity that's involved in telling ourselves the truth, like being honest about that, that receptivity is a kind of interest or investigation. And so it's, it's a, you know, a paradox to, to feel into our unfinished business and care about abandoning the roots. It sounds like an action word, abandoning the roots of greed, of ill will, of delusion, and to be really relaxed when we receive the truth of our own experience, the truth of greed the truth of ill will, the truth of delusion, right? Because we don't want to see that. (laughs) And yet it's here, right? So that's part of the balance too, is, is reckoning with this reality that, oh yeah, seeing and meeting experience as it is, is actually what needs to happen. It's not that added move of layering a story on top of it, and telling ourselves we're bad, creating a sense of that sense of self in that moment, that's not actually going to help. Right? But that relaxation is not kind of a passivity that we just lay down and um, wallow in the experience, but it's actually the wisdom that understands these are just causes and conditions that have given rise to this experience. Right? So it's a wisdom right there in that moment of reckoning that actually supports that, that ease. And this is how it is in our engagement in the world too, right? I don't, I don't think, and this is just my own 
understanding that, and I'm willing to be humbled by this too, but I don't think the Buddha was trying to change the world. I think the Buddha was willing to be moved by the world and he was willing to respond to the world. And that's a beautiful thing. And we learn how to be moved by experience and respond to experience right here in our hearts in any moment. And I think the Buddha's real interest was in that responsivity, right? And seeing how the world is changed from the inside out. The world is actually changed when we take responsibility, when we tell ourselves the truth, when we learn how to meet that truth with as much skill and attunement as we possibly can. And so we should respond to the world. I mean, it's true. There are many, many challenges in our families and our personal lives and our communities and the wider society that we live in that are calling our attention. But we have to ask ourselves that, do we want to engage from a place of, do we want to engage in those experiences from a place of taking a nap? You know, make the mistake of thinking that if I just don't talk or don't do anything, then I at least won't be causing any harm out there. You know, that would be a kind of misunderstanding too, because we're always participating. We're always engaging with our experience. We're always planting karmic seeds in every moment we're living. That's true. So it wouldn't be useful to pretend like we're not doing that. That would be a passive approach. And would it, it wouldn't all either be wise to burn ourselves out, right? Because then we're just seeding more greed and aversion. We're trying to attend to the things that we care about and take care of the world, but we're just adding unwholesome mind states to the mix. And if I asked any of us tonight, no. Do you think the world needs more greed, domination, appropriation, hatred, ill will, confusion? Nobody would say yes, right? Nobody would say yes to that. And the only way we know if we're actually contributing to a world that's more just, more full of more goodness is if we watch our minds and see what we're actually contributing to. And if we tell ourselves the truth about that. So classically, when the Buddha taught about wise effort, he taught about four wise efforts. And it feels useful to me, and maybe it will to you, to some... Sometimes making things really simple can help my mind. <laughs> so you can distill these four wise efforts into four words, right? The first two are about how to engage with what's unwholesome internally. And the second two are how to engage with what's wholesome internally. Right? So the first two regarding the unwholesome to protect and abandon. And the next two to cultivate and maintain. 
So we protect the heart from developing skillful unskillfulness. And then when unskillfulness has arisen, and we notice that, we don't feed it. That's the abandoning part. And then we also cultivate skillful habits of mind. Kindness, patience, wisdom, mindfulness. And when we, those mindfulness, those mind states have arisen, the wholesome or the skillful, then we linger there so they get stronger. So protect, abandon, cultivate, and maintain. Or maintain, I like the word linger. Because we actually need to feel into the positive mind states to really trust that the heart knows how to be that good. It doesn't have to be extra good either. It can just be a little bit good. But when we notice that little bit of goodness, then it gets stronger. Right? The mind goes, oh yeah, you know how to be good, don't you? Look at that. Kind right now. Who knew? listening to a talk by Gil Bronsdahl again about wise effort, and he summarized these four wise efforts in one short sentence. He said, don't make it worse. (laughs) Which I really appreciated. Let's see if we can, yeah, what, right? (laughs) Don't make it worse. So regarding the unwholesome, we think about, you know, if we you know, some of us might be in recovery, for example. This I thought was a good example. And if we're in recovery, we might not step into a bar, right? Because stepping into a bar might be tempting, and we're committed to our recovery. And so stepping, so protecting a kind of protectiveness might be to stay out of the bar. Practice meditation is a kind of protection, right? Because it develops the sensitive heart and we begin to feel a lot. And when we feel a lot, we have a better sense of what we're contributing. So a protective move is to keep practicing. And when we're practicing, there's just this common, there's a real uh, regular way of learning how to reckon with the truth. And so when the unskillfulness arises in the heart, we don't want to jump on the, jump on it and ride it out. That would be making it worse, right? Have you, I know, I, I'll speak for myself and I can probably speak for all of us, but sometimes a juicy thought will go through the mind, right? And maybe a resentment or something frustrating, something somebody did or, really got under our skin and we'll jump in that storyline and just spin with it for a minute. Have you ever done that? Yeah. And then as soon as, you know, whenever you wake up from that, whenever we get, wake up from that, we go, Ooh, that really hurt. You know, it didn't feel good to do that. Or maybe we feel justified because we were right and they were wrong. (laughs) So making it work and see in real time how abandoning makes sense. When the unwholesome has arisen, we abandon it. 
We don't make it worse. We don't make it hurt worse. Already something painful has occurred in our lives, and we don't make it worse by just spinning in ill will towards another person. We might feel the pain of that. That's the attuning. Ah, oh, this, this hurts. You know, the heart has felt, has been injured by this interaction. Let me feel, let me see how I can take care of that. That's a more balanced effort, attuning in that way. But as a, it's a, the heart's protection to make a defensive move. So we don't want to condemn the heart for that. But the move to just spin and spin and spin about how they're wrong and how I'm right and on and on and on. That just is creating more suffering. And then what happens the next time we go to talk to our friend about the injury, all of that comes to the fore, doesn't it? Because the mind has spent a lot of time in that place. And so although we want to resolve a conflict with a loved one, we end up saying or saying things that don't help resolve it, right? Because the momentum, the residue of those many moments of spinning and spinning and spinning you know, will also express themselves. And so the next two, the wholesome, I'll get to in a second, but I wanted, I also wanted to make this point that practicing wise effort is, is about imagining a different motivation in our lives. Because any of our unskillful habits, like fear, like anger, like rage, like resentment, can feel really justified, right? Well, that happened, and this is a justification for that, right? Anger or hatred is perfectly warranted given the incident. And there's that might be true, but we still want to ask if it's beneficial, if it's skillful. Is it skillful to do that? And to know the answer to that, we just have to feel that expression. We have to let the heart, we have to attune, we have to be truth tellers, right? We have to feel that, that rage or that resentment. And if we want to know if it's leaving, if it's going to be skillful in the world or not, we get a taste of that right here. Does resentment feel good? Well, the answer is no, right? Well, it's not going to leave a positive imprint in the world either. And so when we develop the skillful habits of mind, right, when we learn to cultivate and maintain what's wholesome and what's good, we're actually doing a radical move of being curious about our motivating forces for our lives and whether or not compassion, uh, equanimity, wisdom, mindfulness, presence, whether these are strong enough to do all the things we want to do. Can our lives be motivated by these forces instead of rage and resentment and agitation and anything else? Do we need, is our, is our engagement in our lives and in the world and with ourselves, are those necessary? And so when we practice cultivating the wholesome, we get curious about that question. And when we practice abandoning, attuning to the unskillful mind states, 
and seeing if it's possible to set them down, it's not like we're saying that the world is just. We're not saying that. We're just saying that I'm not sure this is the best motivating force for the things I want to do, the ways I want to engage with my life. And we're being curious if cultivating wholesome habits is going to do it. What, what about the strength of compassion? What about fierce compassion? Is that strong enough to meet this moment? And what do we learn when we try? Is it that impatience with the mind that thinks a lot? Is that the only Is that the best way to meet the thinking mind? Or what happens when we relax and allow the mind to do what the mind does? Oh yeah, it's like this sometimes. The mind thinks, right? This is just nature. Wisdom is right there to meet that moment. So that relaxation, that receptivity, wisdom that meets it right there, and the heart that cares. That's the engaging, wise effort that engages with experience as it is. So how to not, back to, don't make it worse. When we cultivate uh, the wholesome, or if we were to forget about cultivating the wholesome, that would make it worse. And sometimes we can fall into this trap as practitioners. We can think that practice is supposed to be work, right? And the real practice is noticing suffering, right? Noticing our unfinished business. So we sit down and we're on the lookout for it. But we forget that the mind is imbalanced when that's all it's doing. We forget that the world is painted with goodness in moments. And that's actually a radical move to be joyful about what's actually joyful, right? What's actually good. And so we have to be willing to cultivate skillful habits, wholesome habits of mind, because it helps the mind stay balanced. And a balanced mind can be present in our lives and in our practice. and then maintain. It would make it worse if we didn't linger in the wholesome because the way the heart learns is to touch that goodness. So we want to cultivate what's skillful, but that's not enough, that cultivation. We want to be able to see that this heart knows how to be good. It knows how to be kind. This heart knows how to be compassionate and how to, how to act in ways that are, this heart knows how to respond without being jealous or comparing. Sometimes this heart can just be delighted about someone else's good habits, right? Mudita practices like this. Appreciative joy. Do you know that practice? Yeah. No. It's one of the four, uh, Brahma Viharas, so practices of the heart, you might say. And there are four flavors of love. 
right? The kind of, and love not, not always the deepest kind of love or the warmest, but sometimes this basic friendliness that accepts the way it is. Right? Benevolence or kindness can be cool and just kind of a, yeah, so it's like this. Right? That can be a flavor of metta or loving kindness. And then the second flavor of love is compassion or uh, karuna. And this is just simply the heart that feels for another suffering, right? You see a, a person who's having a hard time and the heart goes, oh yeah, I can't, yeah, it moves me. Even just briefly, it can be moved by simple suffering. And then the third flavor of love is this heart, this friendly heart, that delights in another's good fortune or well-being or good characteristics or beautiful heart, right? The heart that can appreciate that. That's what we might call appreciative joy or mudita. And then the fourth flavor of love is the heart that can stay open and grounded in the middle of anything. That's what we might call equanimity or upeka. The Dalai Lama said that practicing mudita or appreciative joy increases our chances of happiness by 7 billion. <laughs> 7 billion people. You know, if we were to notice goodness in humanity, right? Not denying any ill being out there. But we're also realizing, oh yeah, there's good. I take my god kids to swim lessons on my partner and I, uh, we share the responsibility when I'm gone, she does it, but I take them to swim lessons on Monday nights and there's a six year old and an eight year old and the six year old is like really not into exercise. It's not her jam. She doesn't really want to do much, but she does like to be in the water yeah, and she likes to swim. And her poor teacher, Mr. Will, like she's just like happy to be moving her body and be curious about the way her body moves. She likes experimenting with the goggle. She likes going up and down underwater and back up again. And Mr. Will, the, for the whole 30 minutes is like, Mimi, put your hand on the wall. Mimi, stop splashing your brother. Mimi, are, are you, did you hear what I said? Mimi, it's your turn. Mimi, come on. You know, just on and on and on. And I, sit there as like a parent, you know, I'm supposed to be helping Mr. Will. <laughs> I'm making sure my kids are doing well, but I feel so delighted by her joy, you know? She's just so free. And it's not just the appreciation of Mimi's good fortune to be in the pool, but to be able to reflect on this heart that can feel that. Oh yeah, so simple. For 30 minutes, this kid is just really enjoying moving, flapping around in the pool. You know, so simple. So we want to cultivate directly these skillful habits of mind, and we also really want to drink them in like a sponge. Just let the heart soak it up. Speaking of mudita, I'll tell one more little story because this is on top of my mind. Maybe you've seen this commercial a little, I think it's a chocolate commercial. It's kind of old now, but I found it again because I wanted to <laughs> see it. 
And I watched it a lot when it came out and then watched it a bunch just recently. But it, two kids, maybe like eight years old or something, you know, this commercial. And there, there's a narrator, like an adult somewhere in the background. And there's a, they're sitting together and they're, have a plate of chocolate in front of them or between them, plate of chocolate between them. And the person says things like, well, if you're, if you're the tallest, get a piece of chocolate. You know, they giggle and the tallest one grabs a piece of chocolate. And then he starts saying things like, if you like to eat your vegetables, then get a piece of chocolate. And they both giggle and both grab a piece of chocolate. And then he says, if you like sharing, get a piece of chocolate. And neither of them, <laughs> they don't smile. They just sit there. And finally, one, one, one little kid starts smiling and she grabs a piece of chocolate and she gives it to her friend who's frowning, right? And the friend then smiles and the person who gave the chocolate, chocolate starts giggling, right? It's Mudita right there, like appreciating someone's good fortune, right? And now they're both giggling, right? Because they're happy. And now I'm smiling because I'm watching the video, right? So Mudita just keeps exponentially increasing our chances of happiness. And it's so simple to practice appreciative joy. Right? What about all those really ordinary moments when you're walking to work or walking to get on the bus or get in your car and you see somebody sipping a cup of coffee? How often does that happen? Like all the time, right? And what if every time you saw somebody sipping a cup, cup of coffee, you said, oh, you know, may you enjoy, thoroughly enjoy that cup of coffee May your enjoyment continue, may it increase, may it never end. You know, every time you saw somebody drinking a cup of coffee. Or a child playing with a friend, right? Or a person walking a dog. Like, oh, you and your four-legged friend, may you enjoy each other's company. May your enjoyment of each other continue, may it never end, right? And just let the heart feel that goodness. Like our whole lives, what would that shift our whole lives would be changed by those experiences if we really took that up as a practice. So wise effort is about noticing the mind that only wants to pick out particular kinds of experience and making some effort to bring the mind back into some balance. There's a, another story that I love in the Buddhist teachings, and this is a story of Bahia. And Bahia was a wise being, and he had students who would ask him questions, and he would offer his wisdom. And at one point, Bahia was like, I wonder, like, am I really that wise? Am I as wise as the Buddha? You know, am I, am I like that? And then Bahia got some information that he wasn't there, right? And so Bahia sets off to find the Buddha. And it's said that he traveled a long way and over mountainous terrain. So I like to imagine that Bahia walked. We don't know if he walked, but I don't know how else he would get there at this time. Who knows? And then he... He eventually gets to where the Buddha's teaching and 
finds the Buddha, and he approaches the Buddha, and he says, the Blessed One, would you please give me the teachings in brief? You know, but he is not asking for a lot. He said, just brief. Can you give me the teachings in brief? And the Buddha denies him. No, Bahia, it's not the right time. Oh, right. can you imagine that letdown? He traveled for days, you know, perhaps walked over mountainous terrain. And you finally get there. You finally find the Buddha. And you ask for the teachings in brief. And he says, no. Right? Well, he comes back to the Buddha two more times gets denied a second time. And on the third time, the Buddha says, okay, I'll give you the teachings. And I'll, I don't have it in front of me. But he says something like, he gives this very brief teaching. Something like that. The scene is just the scene. The herd is just the herd. He goes through the five senses. And the sixth, the cognized, is just the cognized. And when you understand that this is it, right? this is the totality of your experience, and you understand there is no you there, that this is just it. It's just what you see, what you hear, what you think, right? Then you will understand the end of suffering. Very brief teaching on emptiness. And it said that Bahia was fully awakened after hearing this teaching. And you learn that because very shortly after that, Bahia was killed by a cow. And the Buddha is instructing his students to take care of Bahia and give him a fine burial. And he discloses this. So yeah, you know, he was ready to hear this teaching and he was fully awakened. And that's always a kind of impressive moment, right? So we can go, oh, what happened? Like, what is all that preparation to get the mind ready for that moment. What are all those moments of practice and realigning with our deepest intentions? How does that work? But what's also very interesting to me is how many times Bahia probably wanted to quit on his journey and then getting denied not once but twice when he gets to find the Buddha. Can you imagine how many times Bahia had to renew his deepest aspirations on that journey? I can imagine he was met by all kinds of experience, doubt, physical, you know, difficulties. I imagine, I could imagine that he just wanted to quit or thought about quitting or maybe did turn around. And, and so wise effort is like reorienting towards the most beneficial thing. Like, and Bahia. So perhaps that preparation in his life, getting ready to receive those teachings, involved all those moments of renewing our intentions, renewing his intentions, or realigning with his wholesome desires for freedom, for skillfulness, and then continuing the journey.
And one of the things I love about the Bahia Sutta is that it normalizes the experience of doubt on the path. To imagine that Bahia had many moments of doubt and yet kept understanding them, though doubt is like this, and then kept finding a way to go forward. And so I'd like to end with this poem from a, a book of poetry called The First Free Woman. It's a book of poetry inspired by the Terigata, which is a very small collection of poems of the first awakened women at the time of the Buddha. This is Vidya Victor. When everyone else was meditating, I'd be outside circling the hall. Finally, I went to confess. I'm hopeless, I said. The elder nun smiled. Just keep going, she said. Nothing stays in orbit forever. If the circling is all you have, why not make the circling your home? I did as she told me and went on circling the hall. If you find yourself partly in and partly out, if you find yourself drawn to this path and also drawing away, I can assure you, you're in good company. Just keep going. Sometimes the most direct path is in a straight line. Well, thanks for your kind attention tonight, everyone, and I hope to see you again. Take care. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.